of London City Presbyterian Church when I say the following, that what we long to see at LCPC is the emergence of a culture of evangelism. The emergence of a culture of evangelism. I'm sure uh, you see exactly what I mean by that. We don't believe that the proclamation of the good news should be reserved for just this moment here once a week. Nor do we believe that there should just be, our evangelism should just consist of the occasional Christianity explored course that is dotted throughout the year. No, we long to see all believers at London City Presbyterian Church go out and enthusiastically share their faith with the people in their lives. So what is it? It's a congregational-wide culture of evangelism. That's the hope, the desire, the longing here. I ask you this, though. What do you think I say that to you? Uh, does fear take hold? I bet you it does a little bit, doesn't it? I think uh, perhaps more than any other, evangelism is an unwelcome subject for us. Because we know, don't we, that it's to this we're called as Christians, right? We know that it's part of the DNA of the church. But isn't there a sense that we feel really quite inadequate for this task of witnessing to a city like London with the gospel? In, In fact, is it the case that for some of us in this room just now, that we feel so ill-equipped for evangelism that it's been a very, very, very long time since we've introduced the topic of Jesus into the conversation. Think about it for yourself, friend. What about with you? Is that a long, long time since you shared the good news with the people in your life? Well, this morning, what we're going to do in our time together is we're taking a break. If you're visiting us this morning, normally we're in the Sermon on the Mount we're taking a break from the sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at Isaiah 6 and the call of Isaiah to what is prophetic ministry. So we're going to look at Isaiah 6. And here's the thing. Right out of the block, straight off the bat, I want to show you something incredible in the text. Okay, so if you've got your Bible open, look at verse 8 with me. If you don't have your Bible open, open your Bible and look at verse 8 with me. And have a look. This is our text today, verse 8. It is incredible. So you have got the almighty triune God considering who to commission. Now look at verse 8 and see what Isaiah says. What does he say? He says, isn't this incredible? He says, here I am, send me. Do you see what that is? You've got somebody actually volunteering to be part of Christian Witness. Now you compare that with your own heart. Compare it with what we are like in the 21st century. Compare it to our reluctance, our hesitancy, you know, our reticence. You've got somebody there. Isn't it incredible, isn't it? You've got somebody who's actually begging God, pleading with God, please allow me to be involved in proclaiming your truth. So that's what we're going to do. This morning, simply, we're going to try and answer this question. How can that happen? Do you see it, friends? Like, what is it that can so enthuse a person that they actually volunteer to proclaim God's truth to to people who are lost and dying? In fact, I will rephrase the question. What are we doing today? We're going to answer this question. What is it that fuels eager evangelism? What is it that can possibly inflame us to eagerly share the good news? So, I'm going to pray And then we're going to look at Isaiah 6. So would you bow with me before this great God? Gracious God, how it is 
uh, for us spiritually that the Lord's Day seems ever increasingly as though it is an oasis for us. We live in a spiritual desert in the United Kingdom. And Lord God, once a week we are able to come to to drink and to be refreshed. And Lord God, we thank you for this. And we do pray, Lord God, as we come and gather like this, that you would speak powerfully to us. Lord, many of us come and we are lukewarm as believers. Others come into this room who know not the Lord Christ as Savior. And Lord, we long to be refreshed by your words. But Lord, help us to focus on you and not just on what we gain from this, that we might leave this place today rejoicing in the vision you give us of yourself and your greatness. We long for you to be praised. Now we ask these things in Jesus' name. Okay, so if you've got Isaiah 6 open in front of you, three affirmations that I think that we can make from this portion of Scripture. Here's the first. Proclamation is powered by a knowledge of God. That's the first affirmation, the first truth from Isaiah 6. Proclamation is powered by what? A knowledge of God. Now, I'm sure in the reading a moment ago, you must have done this. You must have noticed the kind of fascinating and really unusual way that this chapter begins. Did you notice that this incredible vision that Isaiah is given begins with the really strangest kind of chronological marker? Do you see it? In verse 1, we are told that this happened in the year, not in the first year of so-and-so's reign, not that, but in the year that King Uzziah died, in the year of his death, Isaiah. Now, we've got to ask the question, why give it such an unusual chronological marker? Why does it begin like that? I think part of the reason is just to remind you and me of the historical setting of this vision. So Isaiah sees these things in the year probably is 740 BC. And it was at a time of almost unparalleled prosperity for the people of Israel. Has anyone seen on the internet the pictures, the before and after pictures of Dubai? They're always, they're all over the internet. I'm sure a lot of you have seen them before and after. So you have a picture of Dubai in about 1980. And the before shot is just a desert. You know, there's nothing there. And then there's an aftershot of about 15, 20 years later, what Dubai is, you know, mid-1990s, and it's just shot up. You know, it's gone from a desert, and it's, it's this big bustling metropolis all of a sudden. That's the idea here. That's the idea. The people of Israel have just enjoyed this, just burst off material prosperity. But here's the thing. What now? Here, 740 BC, what now? Well, not only have their enemies been taken over by this vicious ruler, really aggressive king, but look at this in verse 1. Think about it. Not only has that happened, but now their king, Uzziah, this guy who has overseen all of this prosperity and goodness, whereas he's lying in his bed and he's frail and he's weak and he's dying. Do you see the background? Do you feel a sense of the background? These people are thinking, well, maybe wealth success, maybe it doesn't bring security after all. But then I think there's another reason for this time marker, and it's this. We are told, you are told of Uzziah's death to set up a contrast before your eyes. 
See, I think we've all, even the boys and girls, I think we've all heard this phrase be used in society, have we? The king is dead. What is it, boys and girls? The king is dead. Long live the king. Right? We know that phrase. Isn't that, in a sense, the vibe, the atmosphere in verse 1? Because complete it to the end. Look what it says. The king is dead. Long live the king. Is it? Yes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the real king. In the king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw God himself. Do you see that there's a contrast being set up? Now, this week, uh, Reverend Perkins, who began the service here, uh, he said this to me. He said that uh, sometimes when he's coming in the pulpit to preach and he is desperate to have a sense of the gravity of what this is right now, what Reverend Perkins does sometimes is he calls to mind the verses and the truths of this portion of scripture you've got in your hands. And friends, you can see why he does that. Because before you just now, is there not the most incredible vision of your God? I mean, what a contrast with Uzziah. Would you look at it with me? Look at verse 1. And and first of all, I want you to consider the majesty of our God. Where is he? Do you see it in verse 1? What is said of God? He is sitting on a throne. Compare it to Uzziah in his bed, frail. God seated, settled in his sovereignty, seated on the throne. Now look on. Where is that throne positioned? Isn't it marvelous? It is high. It is high. There is distance. It's high and lifted up. So to the supremacy and the sovereignty of God is added this idea of his transcendence, the exaltation of the almighty God. But then do you know what we have to do? I think we have to deal with something of a little mistake and a little error. Because are you with me when I say this to you, that actually God himself is not, in his person, not described in these verses. Is he? God himself is not described. But do you notice as you read on what is described? It says that the train of his robe filled the temple. Now here is the little mistake here. It's just a little error, I think. In the ancient world at this time, 740 BC, robes never had trains so to speak. So, take it from me, I'm much more inclined to go with the footnote at the bottom of your page. This is not the train of God's robe. Do you see what it is? What's been spoken of is the hem of the garment. Does everyone get that? The hem? Like the the edge of his garment. Just the frill at the bottom of the garment of God. And I'm saying to you, does that not make it all the more incredible? Because such is his splendor that the description of God, as somebody else has said, has it rises no higher than the very bottom of his garments, such as his splendor. But that is sufficient, that hem, that edge, to fill the whole temple courts. I mean, seriously, if you're a believer this morning, do you not, in a sense, shrink back from this? Oh, aren't we given a sense of the grandeur of your God, the greatness of God? We see his majesty. But if we see that, do we not also hear sense the holiness of God? Because do you see in verse 2 what comes next, friends? Look verse 2. Love it. Next we come to the seraphim. The seraphim. 
not to be too picky, I think there's probably an issue here with the seraphim as well. Maybe you see what the issue is. Aren't these seraphim amazing? I mean, they truly are fascinating and exotic. I mean, they're so exotic. They are, the, the word here means burning ones. Like what we are dealing with in seraphim are fiery, angelic beings. In fact, more than that, what we are dealing with are fiery, multi-winged, angelic beings. And they're so exotic that what tends to happen as a preacher, and I've done it in the past, they're so exotic that a preacher will work through Isaiah, get to these burning ones, and spend half the sermon talking about the seraphim. Okay, but here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider what these burning ones are doing. Because friend, have you ever played hide and seek with a toddler before? Have you ever done that? Have you ever played hide and seek? Not just with a kid, but a tiny three, four year old kid. I've done it with the kids in the past when they were young, played hide and seek. What does a toddler do when it's their turn to hide? If they're a wee, totty little kid, what do they do? They don't run and hide pews or hide in a corner. What do they do? A little toddler. A little toddler does this. My turn to hide. Okay. That. That's all they do, isn't it? A little baby, little kids, just put their hands over the face. And what do they think? They think they're vanished. <laughs> like they think, ah, right, yeah, nobody can see me now. I'm fine. That's great. Do you see it though? I mean, isn't that what the seraphim do here? Did you notice the detail? I mean, they try and cover themselves up. They take their wings and they cover their feet. And they cover their faces with, with two of their wings as well. And I know that that is to do with the glory and the majesty and the radiance of, of, of God. But are they not also communicating to you and to me? Are the seraphim not here hiding, vanishing, stepping back, saying to us, Don't look at us! Like, don't spend all your time on us! We're angelic beings! Look to him! Look to this great, exalted king! And if you miss the import there, I am sure there's no way that you missed the seraphim song, did you? Let's hear it once again, and let's look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. And as you find the verse, I say this to you, just as a side note. I believe, I think I'm right in saying that as I speak to you just now, right now, as I speak to you, this song is being sung. As I speak to you just now, that there in glory, you have the burning ones singing this very song to the praises of your God. So what are being said just now? What is said here? Look at the verses. What is it? They sing in antiphonal song. So that is the idea of ongoing, back and forward, back and forth. Songs of delight, songs of real joy. And they sing these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, this is the only time in all of the Bible that an attribute of God is so intensified that it is repeated three times. Thrice repeated for intensity. These angelic beings singing of God's separateness, singing of his otherness, singing of God's godness. They are singing of his moral perfection. They are singing back and forward of God's ethical purity. They are singing of his glory. And it is a glory that these angels say it fills everything. It fills the whole earth. Christian in here. 
Are you not excited by this? Are you not thrilled by it? Is it not the most majestic section of scripture before you? Behold your God. Consider Uzziah. Here is someone different. Here is the king of security, of sovereignty. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of might. Now, surely, surely as his people, his covenant people, we are brought now to a place of wonder and awe, of reverence and praise. But I do think there is the most critical lesson for you here, for you and for me. What's our theme? What's Isaiah about to do? He is just about to volunteer for Christian witness. So let me lay this at your door, Christian friend. Do you worry about your evangelistic heart? Do you wonder about dryness of your soul? We will only be enthused for Christian witness if we too, in here, ourselves, have a sense and a vision of the greatness of God. Like you and I, we're only going to eagerly engage this city with the good news. If we rid ourselves of the very, very small and pathetic ideas we have in here of God. You know, the ideas of God. God is just this uh, temporal help. He's just a, a friend in need. If we take those small, poor, pathetic, weak, frail ideas of God, we chuck them out. We replace them with what? A vision of our triune God as he really is. And you say back to me, how on earth do we do that? What do we do? I mean, on our way home, do we pray that God would merge heaven and earth and give us a vision like Isaiah has here? No, but is this not true? That there is nothing at all that God shows Isaiah about himself in this vision that God has not also revealed to you in the pages of this book that you have in your hands. Did you hear that? There is absolutely nothing, nothing at all that God shows Isaiah here about his attributes, about his nothing that God has not revealed to you in much greater detail where in the pages of Scripture. And so do you see and recognize the application for us? Do we want to be enthused ambassadors for Christ? Do we want to be burning ones for God's glory? Do we want to go out and share the good news? What do we do? What's the first thing that we do? We pursue a vision of the greatness of our God. And we do it in his most holy word. We see proclamation powered by a knowledge of God. A second affirmation we, we can make from this portion of scripture is that proclamation is powered by a knowledge of the gospel. So enthused evangelism, yes, powered by a knowledge of God, but also powered by a knowledge of the gospel. I'm sure you would agree with this, would you, that Isaiah is one privileged bloke, isn't he? Don't you think so, from Isaiah? He's just seen something we have not seen, in a sense, you know, he's... It's seen one of the greatest ever visions of the Almighty God. So, how, if you didn't know better, how would you expect Isaiah to respond to all of this? If you didn't know better, he has just seen, at a time of real insecurity, he has just seen the sovereign God. You might expect Isaiah to be doing what? Jumping for joy, right? He's just seen God. You might expect him to be dancing, 
and jubilation. And so in light of that, is it not quite striking for you to notice how Isaiah does respond? Would everyone do this? Would you look at verse 5 to see how he responds? Along with the thresholds of the temple, Isaiah himself shakes, doesn't he? Indeed, what this man does is really quite something, is he calls down upon his own head covenant curses. These are oracles of death that he calls down upon himself. A a lot of you in here will know the King James version of the Bible. You will know what the authorized version says in Isaiah chapter 6. What is it that Isaiah does? He's faced with the glory and the majesty of God. He falls to his knees and he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am, I am lost. Now, a lot of people ask at this point why Isaiah is so fixated on his mouth. Did you notice that? If you see it in verse 6, he cries out, Woe is me, I am, an, I am a man of unclean what lips. Then the next bit, I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. So lots of people ask the question, well, why are you fixated on his mouth? Like, why doesn't he say, really, though, you may be asking this, are you? Like, why doesn't he say, I'm a man of unclean thoughts? I'm a man of unclean actions. Why is it I'm a man of unclean lips? Maybe you know the answer. Do you know the answer? Think biblically. Isn't it the case that throughout God's word, so often it is our speech and our words that are the evidence of our depravity? They are speech. The way you talk, the way I talk, the way that we communicate is so often is proof of our sin. Do you see in the face of this holy God, the majest, majesty, the exalted Lord, what is Isaiah doing? He's cut to the heart and he is confessing his sin. Now, I think if this was the end of the vision, it would be dreadful. Don't you agree? It would be dreadful if he was just cut to the heart. It is not the end of the vision. And so I have a task for you this morning. I want you to do this with me and you are going to fail at this. But I'm going to ask you to do it nonetheless. Would you try to picture and imagine what happens next in this vision? I mean, there is, before his eyes, movement at this point. He has just cried out of his iniquity before God, and suddenly there's a flickering and a move. One of the seraphim, that is, did you notice that it is above the throne at the beck and call of its king? One of the seraphim begins to move. And, and indeed, isn't it the case that it would be utterly terrifying? Don't you think it'd be terrifying, Isaiah? Because what happens is that one of the burning angels, fiery, multi-winged angels, what does it do? It flies directly towards him, carrying a burning coal in his hand. Terrifying. And then it flies right up to Isaiah. And it's right in his face, this burning angel. What does it do? Did you notice the detail? This burning coal, taken from an unspecified altar in the temple uh, is an altar stone the seraphim places it to 
a burning coal to the lips of Isaac, cauterizing his speech, cauterizing his lips. And then did you notice the final detail here that Isaiah hears from this angel before him? The best words. I mean, the greatest words that this man has perhaps ever heard or would ever hear. Did did you get it? The angel declares, Isaiah, your guilt's gone. Your sin's gone. Your sin covered, atoned for. Isaiah, your sin is forgiven. Now, I think here, what we could do is think the big picture stuff. How this burning all or coal answers the question that has been raised by the first five chapters of Isaiah. Namely, how can a rebellious people be reconciled to a holy God? And what is the answer that an altar coal gives you? How can we be reconciled to a holy God? The answer only through substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And if we had it longer, we could focus on the big picture. You know what I want to do? I want to go back to our theme. What is our theme? Do you remember? As you recall, it is evangelism. Do you not, Christian friend, recognize an incredible truth here? I mean, what is Isaiah? Think of the logic, the flow of the chapter. What is Isaiah about to do? He has just had this altar stone touch his lips. What's the next thing that comes out of his lips? Volunteering for Christian witness, Christian service. Is this not the case, friends, that it is a reminder of the grace of God in dealing with sin that propels this man to proclaim God's truth? Did you hear that? It is a reminder of God's grace in dealing with sin that takes Isaiah and catapults him into Christian witness. Like, you must see it, do you? I mean, this coal touches his mouth. He feels the weight of his sin. The coal touches his mouth. And now he is longing and he is desperate and he is yearning to be of service to this God. Why? Because he feels the weight of his sin and he now sees the extent of what God has done for him in providing forgiveness. And I have to say this, and if you're a member of LCPC, listen to this. It is a tough word. It is a rebuke for all of us. It is a bad and nasty diagnosis. Listen, part of the reason that we as a congregation are not more evangelistically minded, part of the reason for that is we do not sufficiently appreciate what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That is why we are not more evangelistically minded. I mean, if we only understood more of the depths of our utter depravity, if we just understood more of what Christ has done for us on the cross, I mean, you can see what would happen to us, don't you? If we understood more of the depths of the nature of the gospel, not only would our lives be more thoroughly characterized by witnessing for Christ Jesus, do you know what would happen if we appreciated truly the gospel? We would leave this service... We would go and run and find the people we love. And we would tell them immediately of God. We would tell them immediately of our sin. We would tell them immediately of Calvary and the depth there. And so you see again, do you not, the application. What does this force us to do? We go out from here. We go into this week and we plead daily with God to press on our hearts the depths and the wonders of his grace for you and for me. Why? Because only when we remember the altar call 
It's only when we remember the sacrifice that has been made for us that we're going to witness and we're going to do so with much greater zeal. So we've seen that proclamation is powered by a knowledge of God. Proclamation is powered by a knowledge of the gospel. And then we close with a third affirmation. So our proclamation is powered by a knowledge uh, or the knowledge that God will save. The knowledge that God will, underlined, highlighted, God will save. Now, without again wishing to sound overly critical at all, then I think it's probably fair to say, maybe you would agree with us, or maybe not. I think it's fair to say that too many sermons on Isaiah chapter 6 they finish at verse 8. Uh, I have to hold my hand up and say I've, I've done this a couple of times myself. And I can really, even this week, I can feel the temptation to do that. You see it? I mean, Isaiah 6 verse 8 is so uplifting. Here I am, send me! So uplifting. And then verses 9 and 10 and following... You know, with reverence, in a sense, they're anything but uplifting. Can you look at them with me? And the boys and girls, can you look at it as well? Because it's quite difficult and quite confusing. You see it? I think from verses 9 onward, the content of the message, the results of this message that Isaiah is commissioned to take out, they're kind of spelled out by God. And isn't it quite stark when you read it? Like far from this being a message that's going to bring life, Isaiah's commissioned to take out a message that brings judgment. That is amazing when you think about it. God is saying Isaiah the prophet. He's saying it's actually through the proclamation of truth. It's actually Isaiah. What oh, commitment again? Don't you agree? It's actually through your preaching that people are going to be hardened of heart. Like through your preaching, people are going to become more staunch in their unbelief. Again, do you know what we could do? Like, could we not? Address what that says to the church in the 21st century. Like, do you know what it's like? There's visitors here. We're the same here. Don't we sort of glamorize evangelism? We do, right? Like, we kind of pretend that it's great and it's brilliant and it, like we sugarcoat. In fact, we should not glamorize evangelism. Do you understand what it is? Do you understand what we're dealing with here? This is war. Like this morning, God in his word calling for us to become an army and go out and battle. And it is a war where multitudes of people that you speak to, they are going to eternally reject the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not glamorize evangelism. Indeed, I want to focus on something else. See, most of the people in this room just now have visited our house in Woodford Green in the northeast of London. Most of you, not everyone, but most of you have been up there. So perhaps those who have will remember this, that we used to have a great smacking big ash tree in the back garden in Woodford Green. I love this tree. I'm not, a, you know, like, I don't know much about trees. Not a big tree hugger. But I love this tree, you know. It was a beautiful tree. And it provided shade, privacy, Provided privacy in London. It was great. Problem with the tree was that it was disturbing the neighbor's land. Uh, it was disturbing the drive. And so the inevitable thing had to happen that it had to be uh, chopped down. 
And so I'd never seen anything like this before because it was a big tree. So one morning, a big team of tree surgeons come into our garden. And, you know, they're up the tree and they've got hooks and chainsaws and ladders and they're cutting down the big branches. And then they take the huge big trunk. That's a worrying moment. They take the huge big trunk. The whole big tree comes crashing down. They put it through the wood chipper and they move that away. What's left? You've got a stump, but they've got to deal with that stump. So what they did, they took these huge big tools, implements, and they scarred the center of the stump. Then they took all of this poison and poured the poison right to the heart of the stump. And then, (laughs) then they leg it. You know, then they're out of there warning us, don't go near that stump, all that poison. And the stump is left looking as dead as it could be. It looks dry and shriveled and disgusting. Then about six months later, this happened. I went outside into the garden. Spring had passed in the beginning of the summer. I go out in the garden. Could, really couldn't believe it. Like They spent a lot of time to kill this tree. And from the middle of this stump, this one solitary shoot of life had appeared. They thought they killed it. They thought it was dead. But this tree had survived. It was resolute. And I wonder... Whether you saw that that is the promise that God makes to Isaiah in chapter 6. The yeah, he promises judgment on Israel. He promises that Israel will be like a landscape, a forest that will be cut down and looking dead. But then you look at the last verse of this chapter. Look at it with me. Look at the last verse. Have a look at it. What does God promise? He speaks of a stump. Doesn't he? A stump that's going to remain. And look at the last phrase. All your hope, Christian friend, is pinned on the last three words. The last phrase. Look at it. What does he name the stump? The holy seed. The stump is the whole. Do you see the idea? That yes, the whole, the line of David is going to be judged. But the root of Jesse is going to spring up. The stump seems dead. The covenant appears in Isaiah 60, lie in tires. But God is saying, no, 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 no. One shoot of life is going to come up. I am going to preserve my people. I'm going to save my people through the holy seed, the seed of the woman, through the Christ that was to come. And I think that there should provide all the motivation that London City Presbyterian Church needs. That same truth there, that little phrase that motivated Isaiah for a lifelong evangelistic ministry, that should spur you on to witness to your friends and your colleagues and your family. What is that truth? It is that ours is a God of salvation. The truth that God will use you And me, he does use people like us, weak people, frail people, a church like this, and for for the saving of souls eternally. And I wonder, I don't know some of you this morning, and I wonder if you sit there and doubt this. Do you doubt that God can use his people, people like you, for the saving of souls? Do you doubt it? Let me tell you this. I'm ending with this. So listen to it. A few nights ago, the elders of this church had a Kirk session meeting. We met in the creche, in the back of the room, a few nights ago. And one of the girls of the congregation, Harriet, was invited along. And it was the most marvelous night. Because 
that evening, Harriet made what we call a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she told the elders of what she knew to be true, that God has shown her that she's a sinner. But more than that, God had revealed to her the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to defeat sin. She spoke of the cross. She spoke of atonement. She spoke of everlasting life in Christ. And listen to me, how can that be? This is a girl, lit, a girl who, who was not brought up in church, not brought up in the gospel. How is it possible that, 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 that she believes? All because God used one of her friends. All because one of her friends, I will leave it to you to guess who that might be. One of her friends gave her a Bible. One of her friends sent her texts from Holy Scripture. One of her friends spoke to her sin of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happened? By the grace of God, what happened? The coal touched her lips. And she is ever more reconciled to a holy God through Golgotha. Friends, ours is a God of salvation. So may it be that a culture of evangelism, just like this stump here, a culture of evangelism springs up at London City Presbyterian Church. Why? All for the glory of our King. All for the glory of this, our exalted triune God. Let's pray. Lord, as we ponder these things, we remember most clearly what you showed us earlier this year when we looked before at this chapter, that this one enthroned, transcendent, as we learn in John chapter 12, is none other than the Christ, the Son of God, And that brings us short. We are cut to the heart as we consider the lowly views that we often have of Jesus. He is but a friend that we occasionally turn to. And how we should be enthused for a grander vision of our Savior. That he is majestic and holy and all-sovereign and all-powerful. And yet such is your grace that the Lord Christ would condescend to lay down his life and become the true altar, the true place, the true actual sacrifice for sin, the cross of Calvary. Lord, we are thankful that you are a God who saves. You do all of the work. Help us to believe in great salvation. And help us, please, to be able to say, here I am, send me. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.